Welcome back to Break the Twitch, an interview-based podcast on intentional lifestyle design. I'm your host, Anthony Ungaro. We sit down with amazing guests that share their expertise and personal experiences on how they manage distractions, do their best work, and find their flow, so that you can too. In episode 30, I talk with Pamela Slim, a business coach and the acclaimed author of Escape from Cubicle Nation and Body of Work. Pamela talks about her work helping diverse entrepreneurs bring their ideas to life, all while building a local and truly inclusive community at Ka Main Street Learning Lab, located in downtown Mesa, Arizona. We discuss the importance of allowing the time and space for your work, from handling feedback to knowing when to further hone an idea and when to let go of perfectionism. Pamela shares her wisdom from over 20 years of coaching. We discuss everything from boundaries to defining success and creating an intentional community. It's a really wonderful episode with tons of wisdom, so you're going to love this one for sure. This podcast is member-supported. We don't want to distract you with ads or sponsors, so we created the member community. The community is chocked full of tools and resources to help you create more space in your life, and it's just 10 bucks a month. There is no commitment whatsoever, and even if you join for a single month, it's a huge help in continuing this podcast's production. Go to breakthetwitch.com slash community to find out more. That is breakthetwitch.com slash community to learn more. Finally, we are just 15 reviews away from hitting that 100 review mark on iTunes. Please take a moment to help spread the word and leave a review on iTunes or your podcast player of choice. We really appreciate your help. And with that being said, let's go ahead and start the show. Pam, thanks for sitting down with me. It is my great pleasure. Thanks for coming over to our side of town. This is actually my second ever interview in Arizona and my first ever since we have moved down here. And so thank you for welcoming us to your space here. Um, what is this space, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about it? Absolutely. So this is the Ke Main Street Learning Lab. And Ke, kind of think of the phonetic pronunciation as K-E-H, is a Navajo word in my husband's uh, language, which means system of kinship. Mm. And the best way that I describe it is whenever a Navajo or in their own language, the Diné people, whenever they meet each other, they introduce themselves by clan. And when they discover specifically how it is that they're related by clan, that feeling when they know how they're connected is ke. So it's a very deep, meaningful concept and uh, within Diné culture. And for us, as we were talking about what we wanted for this space, we really wanted a place where people felt that deep sense of connection, where there was respect for different heritages and really looking at the roots of where people come from. Um, and so by day, the physical space is my office and my husband's office. And then the evening and the weekends, we have all kinds of events that are led by and for the community, especially entrepreneurs of color. And so it is lively with all kinds of things happening all the time. I'm curious what led you to opening up this space. Now, I know that's probably a pretty broad question because we could go back as far as you'd like with that. Yeah, so it is neat in that it like has threads back actually 30 plus years and in, in my own educational experience and then more recently, really the origin story I tell of this space started in 2015 when I did a tour, a 23 city tour which I call the unbook tour with kind of a wink to my friend Scott Stratton that wrote the book Unmarketing and Unselling. Mm. So uh, I have been really working on research for my next book for a good amount of years. And in 2015, I went around the country sharing a model of community building that I had built up over 30 years in many different types of environments. And the idea was really to connect in community to see what it is that people thought about it, where what were the interesting spots in order to figure out where the book really needed to go and what the book needed to be about. So in doing that, 
for some reason, on the very first workshop that I taught, which was in California, I asked the participants, how many of you have ever seen a Native American business presenter at a conference that is not necessarily somebody doing the blessing, which is wonderful, or somebody doing cultural entertainment, which is also wonderful, but specifically as a business expert at a business conference. And so I asked that same question in all 23 cities on the tour. And out of 23 cities, only seven people ever had, and four of them were in Vancouver, Canada. Wow. So what was powerful about that with my husband being a Native-owned business owner for many years is it is not because there are not many hundreds of thousands of Native business owners. It really is that there is zero visibility. And in fact, for Native folks here in this country and, and also in Canada, for First Nation people, there has been a very specific process of invisibility, of specifically having people be invisible. Because if we don't really recognize the truth of the history, then it sort of makes it easier to have more of a happy Disney version, you know, of how our country was founded. And so the unfortunate truth is that is really sobering uh, in talking with many Native folks around the country is there are many communities where people are shocked to find out that Native people are still here, that wow. there are accountants and lawyers and graphic designers and videographers and everything because there is such little visibility. So when I got back, and really, we were talking about North Dakota before the cameras and, and the microphones started rolling. When I was in Fargo, I another kind of inspiration on that tour is I sat down after I did my workshop, and I talked with um, somebody from the, the mayor's office and the head of the Arts Commission and the startup um, Emerging Prairie, which is a startup um, location there. And I was sitting around a table and they were all talking, the city planner, we were all talking about kind of what was going on. And the conversation turned to where they were all saying, you know, what can we do together to really make sure that we're driving kindness as a core principle in everything that we're doing? And they started to get into these deep conversations about that. And I remember just sitting back and saying, oh my gosh, this actually is something that people in a local community can choose to focus on. People within all these different sectors of, you know, entrepreneurship and government and the arts can begin to really work together to create a better environment. And that was just very inspiring for me. It was very moving. And in addition to then looking at the data that we had gathered about how little visibility there is, not just for Native entrepreneurs, but other entrepreneurs of color here in Mesa, Arizona in particular, that that's where my husband and I decided we really wanted to do something and open a space very specifically that would really be highlighting the leadership that already exists. And we could dive into a little bit later in the interview, but, you know, a basic premise that I found people would immediately have when they talk to me about this is, oh, okay, so what are you teaching, Pam? And what are all the ways that you're basically building the capacity of these, these communities so that they can be leaders? To which my response was always, that is not the problem. Hmm. Like, skill already exists, expert capability exists. What we need to do is just remove obstacles for the community to see the leadership that exists. And so that's the entire way that we've really structured things around here. So you mentioned you're working on your third book now. Mm -hmm. And where are you in the process of that right now? That is a very good question. As I know, we'll have some fun digging into the creative process and writing. I have been working on the research and ideas for this book for probably the last four years. And the phase I'm in right now is actually finishing the proposal. So okay. it sounds a little strange. <laughs> I've done a lot of things differently, maybe a little bit backwards from other books, but with some intention where um, a core philosophy that I have about books for my first Escape from Cubicle Nation and my second body of work is that I really um, like to write about things that I have actually done and work or models that I've actually done successfully with clients. So in Escape from Cubicle Nation, I wasn't just saying everybody should quit your job immediately. Trust me, like everything will work out mm -hmm. because that's very bad advice. Scary, but yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to make sure that I was giving advice based on real work that I had done with real people who were taking a real risk in order to quit their job and start a business. And so um, 
that's really my approach. And I, you know, I tease sometimes with some of my fellow author friends who are super good. Maybe I'm jealous sometimes. We're like, they can come up with a pithy idea and it sounds really cool and it's exciting and it gets people excited. Sometimes those types of ideas are a little bit easier to sell to a publisher Mm -hmm. rather than something that's really been road tested. It can sound a little bit less sexy and glamorous. But to me, it's very important that that work is done because when I'm giving advice to people, I want to make sure there, there are real things at stake and I want to make sure that it's really road tested. So that's really been what has been a lot of this journey for the book since we opened this space three years ago. I do get very like excited and a little bit, um, I don't know, like self-righteous <laughs> because <laughs> I absolutely 100% have tested the model coming here in in downtown Mesa. And um, even though I have lived in Mesa, I had lived here for 12 years before we moved to this space. I was about 30 minutes away in the eastern part of the city. Nobody here downtown knew me at all. Hmm. So even though a few people on the internet, right, read my books and they knew who I was, I had a pretty, pretty big online presence. Locally, I was completely unknown. And so I used all of the principles I talk about in terms of community building in order to really activate this space because that's what we wanted to do as a mission and also to kind of test myself to really put myself in a place where I was totally unknown and building from scratch. And it's been so wonderful to see some of those results. You know, now I do a lot of work with the city. I did the last two strategic planning for the mayor and city council. I do work with, a, you know, the Mesa Arts Center. I have wonderful relationships with local merchants, you know, with I've learned so many great things about people that are here in the community. Hmm. And so it makes me feel so much more confident now in being able to write a book that's really based on lived experience. And especially when it comes to specifically working on things that have to do with building a really strong, inclusive community, because without the lived experience, you one can do a lot of harm. Yes, definitely. And I greatly appreciate that approach to to creating content, be it a book or anything else, sharing the things that have either worked or sharing why things didn't work and actually going through the experience to to do it. Uh, there's something to be said for that alone, that that that's uh, that's just a substantial thing to offer. Also, that four years of leading up to a book, I think a lot of the time people see a, an author put out a book and it's just rockets to success overnight. And often um, they're not seeing all of the the workings, the the processes, the the exploring, the research and the things, the actual, like you said, putting it into practice mm. that is going into the everything that leads up to that publishing date. Something I heard recently, allow the time that it takes. That's beautiful. I really <laughs> believe in that, you know, and it's not to say there aren't days where I feel a little bit frustrated, right, with the pace or, sure. you know, want it to go a little bit quicker. I just had one of my dear colleagues visit here from New York the other day who was who just left Portfolio, which is my uh, my publisher, who had been a big advocate for and, and um, had got my first two books. And it was just funny because we had been talking about this book for a really long time. And so there is that feeling that is so normal in the creative process of just wanting to rush it and like, oh, man, why can't I just finish it? But really, when I look back at all of my creative work that I've ever done, actively doing the work and really tuning into what is clear, what is not clear, there's a difference between kind of sitting back and waiting for it to happen and actively engaging with the work and going through those uncomfortable times and struggling with that natural part of the the writing process which is uh, always challenging and really shaping the idea and coming up with a pithy title and figuring out the stories and the structure. That is something that if I trust the process and I remember what the process is, it really does take the time that it takes. And then when it clicks, it really clicks. I, when I wrote Escape from, Escape from Cubicle Nation, my first book, I had had my blog. And in May of 2006, I had one of the moments of internet temporary fame <laughs> when my friend now, my friend Guy Kawasaki, but then was an unknown, um, amazing entrepreneurial mentor and writer. He wrote The Art of the Start and was one of the original um, evangelists for Macintosh and has a really storied career 
in entrepreneurship. And I had written a blog post and I shared it with him on a whim one night in an email and uh, I didn't know him. And he wrote me back 10 minutes later and said, can you expand this to a top 10 list, which I did. He's kind of famous for top 10 lists. And he ended up posting that on his blog the next day and it went massively viral. That was the open letter to CEOs across the corporate world. That was a post that most people knew me for, you know, that was, that was one of those weird breakout has only happened once <laughs> kind of things. But after that, there were a number of people that were introducing me to agents and I did put together a proposal and I shopped it around to different publishers in New York. I got back some one feedback from one publisher in particular that said, this is just kind of pedestrian. It's not really interesting. So I, I just kind of backed up and curled my tail up and just went back to work, working with people and didn't really actively pursue it. And about 18 months later, I got an email from um, an editor at uh, Portfolio who said, actually, I listened to your podcast and I love it. And I went to your blog. Would you be interested in doing a book with us? And it turns out that same publisher was the one that had said the idea was very pedestrian. Interesting. So I, I remember that when when getting frustrated by different twists and turns. And very often the way I like to think about it in the creative process is I need to do my work as a creator to really honor what that work is, including putting the work in to really develop it and then to give it the context in terms of a proposal where it really tells the story and it sells the idea because a book is a product and that is the primary consideration that publishers are thinking about. I find it fascinating that that it was the same company that came back and said, actually, this is we really like this. That's how did that right. how did that feel when that happened? Incredible, exceptionally validating. And I actually don't think I need to ask her, but Emily Rappaport, who ended up being my editor, she probably had no idea that I had shopped that proposal. I don't think that there was an awareness before that that had happened. It was probably somebody else that it was sent to. So she was really responding to my content as somebody who was out there in the world looking for fresh voices and so forth. And so it was so exciting. It was one of those things where I thought it was a joke, right? When you get the email, it's like, wait a minute, you know, this could not possibly be because Portfolio was... Seth Godin's publisher and Guy Kawasaki, so and Adrian Zakheim, who's the head of that imprint, edited Good to Great, which is one of my very favorite books of all time. Jim Collins, when I heard him speak about that book before it came out in the year 2000, was like a hugely important moment for me. It was this light bulb went off when he talked about the hedgehog concept. So it's just one of those wonderful times where it really was my desired outcome to be working with that particular publisher at that particular time. And it was really validating to see it. I, when I look back, agree with the initial assessment that my outline at the time when I submitted it was kind of pedestrian because I just had not had the same amount of experience in working with people I needed to have 18 more months of blogging under my belt where I really, that was how I developed a lot of writing chops is, is by blogging. And so it just was a much better concept. I feel like my voice came through much more and I just had a whole bunch more great stories that were coming from real people. I'm curious what kind of advice you might offer someone that has recently received some feedback like that. Well, first I'm Sure, I sent an email to my dad, my sister, my best friend saying everybody sucks and like, it's not fair. <laughs> Don't they know how awesome I am? Like, you know, wallowing a little bit in self-pity is perfectly normal and natural. But then after that, I think it's important to think about who is the source that that feedback is coming from. There's so much discernment when it comes to gathering feedback. And I find for a lot of folks, including myself, where you can get feedback from somebody you admire, maybe somebody who's had an experience that you admire, that you can take that, you can have a certain kind of qualification in your mind for what is truth and what is not, maybe based on some predetermined categories. And sometimes that is the case where a publisher that is in the business of choosing good books, where they're not really excited by something, right, that you can see that 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 is a piece of information that's valid. 
Of course, we can juxtapose that with the oft-quoted Harry Potter story, right, of like, how could 27 different publishers, or if that was the number, read that manuscript and pass on it when, when the people who actually read it were so totally transfixed by it? Like, that's the part that's kind of a mystery of balancing getting feedback and then also really tuning into thinking about who is your ideal reader and what is your own sense about your writing. I know for me, what was hugely validated and in, to this day is the most important thing for me always, which is what do my readers think? What is really valuable? And it was one of my clients that was here locally. I, for mo the most part, before I opened this space here, I, I didn't have local clients. I would have people all over the world and all over the country. Um, but there was one wonderful client that I had who was an engineer at a local company and we would meet at Starbucks and he would come where he would print out copies of my blog posts and very carefully annotate them as an engineer does with highlighters <laughs> and everything. And he, he was one that said, could you please write a book? Because I'm kind of tired of trying to fit all of this together and it would be really useful to have it in one place. And having done so much work in my earlier years in business in Silicon Valley, I, I do really value opinions from engineers. I kind of feel like if you can get engineers and or teenagers to think that you're smart and cool, like you've hit a sort of jackpot. You've made it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> because there's such a quality sometimes of like critical thinking. And it's just one of those fun challenges for me as a liberal arts major to like get an engineer to think that I'm, you know, I'm not living for their validation, but if they really get excited by ideas, then it makes me really happy because I know I've kind of crossed over um, into a territory of people who might think a little bit differently than me who are finding value. And I really appreciate that point of view sometimes that comes um, comes from, from those folks. So th those are other pieces of information I think that are really important to have for discernment. But really when I think about it, you just know. Even with this book, I've had some earlier conversations with publishers as the idea has been more in incubation, and I just don't have a strong enough argument for it yet. It is weird, and folks who are creatives can probably understand this. I know deep within my soul that this book is meant to be written and read and that it is real. There is such deep power in what I've learned through this experience of, of what I'm writing about in the book. I know it's the solution to a lot of problems. And I know that I'm still in the process of really articulating it in a way that people can understand. And that's that instinct where it's different sometimes in thinking about writing another book where I'm kind of like, mm, I'm not really feeling it. I don't necessarily, you know, feel like this is something that that is that strong of an idea, or I could write about this topic, but I'm not really excited by it. For this book, I feel like my entire life and body of work has been leading to it. Um, going back to that 35-year origin story, my degree in college was international service and development with a focus in non-formal education in Latin America. So it's all about social change that's really moved by non-formal education and economic development. So it's so funny now when I hear I am downtown, basically doing a lot of work around economic development, community building, and really looking at education as a tool of social change. And so, so many things that I've done, building a Capoeira community in San Francisco, where I was the executive director for 11 years of a nonprofit martial arts community, um, was all about kind of in the streets, community building in San Francisco of, of building a big youth program up to 250 youth. And so much of that was really practicing these concepts of community building, building communities online. When I, you know, created Escape from Cubicle Nation, so many of the connections that I've made and nurtured have been really based on online connections and knowing how to really genuinely do that. So it's one of those things, you know, sometimes where the skills or gifts or strengths, whatever you want to call it, that are the strongest, we often just don't see because they're such a part of who we are. And I think it's just been this whole series of things that's really made me see 
um, our own political environment, you know, in the last number of years that having deep skills to know how to really connect with each other, um, helping people to see ways in which we really can be more relational and less transactional is super, super important to our survival, you know, as, as a community and seeing the economy totally deconstruct, you know, not knowing what's going on with it is it's really important that we know many different ways that we can create businesses. We know ways that we can help each other out when somebody gets laid off or somebody loses a big client. I I just believe so strongly that we have to be more connected to each other. We have to look out for each other. And by doing so, it just makes everybody stronger. The connectedness is something that I'm particularly interested in, especially around community online and offline. Break the Twitch is, well, for me, it started around the idea of distractions being small online purchases, the one-click purchase that I was making that was repeated small amounts, but adding up to large amounts over a great deal of time, right? And that rolled over into understanding the Twitch to be the little smartphone checks, the social media pings, the notifications, and and then uh, all kinds of things. The, the Twitch shows up everywhere in our lives, especially in the modern era where, in a way, addiction is the new marketing, right? The habit-forming products are are what are required to really stand out now. And so I'm, I'm curious in your own experience around creating connection and mm-hmm. creating community, um, what are some things that that you have done that people can do that might be listening now around removing some distractions day to day? I love that so much. I love that understanding the context under Twitch because, yes, I am an addict at different times <laughs> of days depending upon what's going on. I I can feel it and I really understand what that is. And as you said, there's a part of it we know in business of things that get you excited about having people excited about what you're doing and making it really easy for them to buy. And then there's that really that that downside. To me, my husband, Daryl, has been really, really instrumental in helping me to understand how to practice a state of really being connected. Um, he, he always says he was raised on the Navajo Nation by his grandfather and comes from a long line of traditional medicine people. So he carries a lineage of being a healer. And I think one of the biggest gifts that he has in the way that he likes to teach, which is he is who he is wherever he goes, whether he's inside her house, if he's doing a ceremony, if he's wherever he is, he absolutely lives what he talks about to others, which is really just sharing a way of life. It's not a religion. It's not a particular thing. It really just comes from a way of life that he learned. And that is to pay attention. He calls it touch and listen, right? Where you might literally touch, pick up something like a stone, which is why we see stones (laughs) on the table at different times when I'm having a very deep, intense conversation with somebody that for me or for that person, when we're really getting into a deep conversation, it's really helpful to have something like a stone that you can pick up. Daryl says it's the the bones of our ancestors. That's the way traditionally that that Diné people understand what that is. You can literally feel, you know, that ancient part of what's in that stone. And as an example of something very tangible and tactical and tactile, <laughs> that by touching that, it keeps me absolutely present in the moment. The listening has been the biggest thing that has been so profound for us here. We we call this the first phase of the first three years, listen first. And that is to, before deciding what kind of business model we have, before deciding anything about programs, our, our first thing is to be very cognizant whenever people come to the front door of looking them in the eye and welcoming them and making sure that we're really sincerely acknowledging them as they walk in the door. And if we do that well, no matter if they happen to be somebody who we can help through my business or not, if it's a local community member, somebody who's thirsty, who wants some water, but practicing that very deliberate stopping and really listening to the person and being present, even for a moment, is exceptionally important in terms of setting in motion 
the kind of relationship that really is more what my best friend Desiree calls relate calls a liberatory relationship, Desiree Attaway, um, as opposed to things that are transactional. And it's funny, we were just talking about the front door a minute ago, and there are times like right now we're recording a podcast. And so we're right on Main Street. So sometimes friends walk in, sometimes strangers, you know, would come up to the door. And it's actually still part to us of being really clear and having that connection. We have, we, we put signs on the door that kind of describe what the place is. We have a sign that says, what is this place? Because everybody asks that question when they come in, they're like, is it an art gallery? Like, what is it? And so we answer that. We want to be friendly with the words on the door, but also really clear with the words that when we are doing something that is deep and important where we need to be listening to each other, that we can be fully present and that's okay. So it's it having those kinds of boundaries, putting those kinds of parameters around conversation is something I think that could be helpful as opposed to being totally responsive all the time. And that could be in a networking room where, you know, you and I run into each other and I'm halfway looking at you and I'm halfway looking over your head to see if there's somebody else there. And again, I've been guilty of this, but what I've learned to do is even for a moment when we're meeting for the first time to try to look in your eyes and make a genuine connection. And then I could tell you, you know what, I'd love to stay and talk, but I actually have to run over there as opposed to halfway ignoring, you know, and not really connecting. Absolutely. You said the magic word there, the boundaries. And this is something that I have struggled with. And I've been a person that always wants to say yes to opportunities because there have been so many wonderful uh, things that have been offered that I've just said yes to without really considering fully that have done wonderful things for my life and career and, and allowed me to give back in so many great ways. But that being said, I am now learning to understand the idea of boundaries and how actually boundaries are what allow us to have presence yes. fully. And and when it does come to these moments, creating those boundaries, which might seem slightly unkind up front, are what allows us to respect our time, respect other people's time. And this has been a major learning for me because I've always wanted to say yes. If I can't give myself fully to a project, to a thing that I'm doing, saying yes doesn't actually help anyone. It might let the person down if I'm not able to take it on fully as they might hope. And that leads to all kinds of not great things. So the boundaries uh, are pretty important and pretty incredible when it comes to connecting. And I think that leads into maybe creating boundaries around our technology too, not just with other people, but but actually with our tech and with our obligations and, and the things we set ourselves up for. I'd be curious to know if there are any particular things that, that you do on a day-to-day basis that help create some of those boundaries for you. This is probably the edge for me that is the hardest, frankly, and is the most important. And I notice that it, it can tend to go in different cycles And it's really fascinating, like the human creatures that we are, where a hundred percent, I can know that when I get up early in the morning and I go for a walk and when I put boundaries around technology and when I turn my phone off at night and, you know, when I'm with my kids or at dinner, when I don't look at the phone or things like that, I know a hundred percent that by doing so, I will feel better my brain will be more vibrant and active, like all of those things. I know that. And I can go through different phases of, I guess, choosing to ignore really solid advice. <laughs> so it's like probably why coaches like us are in business, because uh, it's very hard sometimes to be really staying within certain habits. I believe so much in them. And, and I think everything to me really comes down to choices that we make on a daily basis about how it is that we're going to show up for ourselves and for what's important to us. I personally don't really believe in uh, holding a lot of shame or regret just because for me, it, it is not helpful. I'm very happy to assume responsibility of saying, you know what? I didn't do that. I didn't make a big enough case for my book. You know what? you know, to my daughter, like, you are so right. I was on the phone doing, a, you know, a sales call or something when picking you up from school. And 
that probably was not a good choice, right? I think I would be much happier and you'd be more much happier if I were just present for you. And that's a priority. There are times sometimes where you make choices for a variety of reasons. And some of it's just kind of the self-soothing, which is for me, I think, what it is that I'll feel from technology. It's a weird self-soothing, much like some other dysfunctional behaviors like too much coffee. I don't drink alcohol or do drugs, so I don't really have that like to worry about. <laughs> but it really does have that same kind of thing. If I'm feeling anxious, I'll generally like check in on my phone more. The effect tends to be much more negative, where over time I'll start to feel less good and grounded. So again, like that, it's it's just a matter of recognizing that. And I know I was listening to a lot of Mel Robbins books. Have you ever heard Mel that has the the five second rule that, you know, counting down five, four, three, two, one. And some of those kinds of habits are ones that I find really important, like getting out of bed as soon as the um, your alarm rings to just count five, four, three, two, one, to not check your phone at all first thing, like to go for a walk. When I was doing that on a consistent basis, I felt so much better and more clear headed. And so, as I said before, those are things that I notice when I do put parameters around it. I feel much better. I feel much more grounded. My husband helps a lot with reminding me that we kind of remind each other. That's part of what relationships are about. And I will say and declare it to myself, to you, <laughs> to the world in general, the universe, whoever is listening. I really, for this next book, want to do a better job at having some of those boundaries because getting into that creative zone where I do, I am the main income earner, right? In the family currently, my husband's a stay-at-home dad, so he does really important work cool. with the kids. Yeah. And so it is important for me to continue working while I'm writing the book. So it just adds a bunch of extra work that needs to be done. And if I am not careful in some of the experience that I've had with past books, it really does make the creative process much more anxious and not as fun. I love to write. I actually really like the creative process. And where I notice that I get into trouble is where I am just numbing myself by messing around on Facebook for hours on end as opposed to writing. And it just creates this spiral, which ends up sometimes locking me into pretty severe writer's block. And I had in body of work, I had it big time. And thank God for smart friends like my friend, Michael Bungay-Stanier from Box of Crayons that um, totally helped to pull me out of it, where he was just like, you know, hey, maybe this is just kind of what your creative process is right now. Don't be so precious with it. Don't worry about being Brene Brown or Dan Pink or, you know, whatever else you want for your book. Like just be you and just write. And if you happen to mess around for hours on end, like that's okay. And something about the way that he was saying it was really helpful to me and it got me moving again. But it really is the thing that that does feel the closest to an addiction that I have in my life now. If not, maybe you can diagnose me as it is an addiction. <laughs> no, I am in no position to do any diagnosing whatsoever. First, I just want to say Thank you for talking about the idea of shame around this stuff. This is a big one for me. And one of the biggest changes that I've made personally around my own habits with food and exercise and those sorts of things that have been the most effective for me is simply working to let go when I screw up. Just, it's okay. Yeah. Right? Sure. I missed a week. We were traveling. It was tough or I wasn't feeling well, but that's okay. And just back. It's allowed me to work into staying more consistent, even if a period is missed, and get back to it. Instead of feeling like all is lost, well, you screwed it up, it's all over, you know, and feeling this feeling about it. It's the same thing with phones, and I think that understanding has mm. just been one of the most powerful things around all of this stuff around presence, around uh, these small habits, these tiny things that we're doing with our phones, with our spending, the ways that we cope, because that is very much what it is. And in the five years I've been, in a way, studying and self-experimenting around the, these ideas of the twitch, 
is it's exactly as you just described. It's like this little kind of wave pinging along the surface mm-hmm. that keeps us floating, but slowly it's kind of on a downtrend where it it does help soothe in the moment. It does feel like, well, it's not this big, scary blank page that I need to fill right mm-hmm. now. So it, it feels like the, the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but over the, the, the long arc is in support of creative flow, in support of getting lost in that page and, and submitting ourselves to it and, and that process. But I've also realized, as, as you've said, for me, I've experienced such as, at least from what I understand, such a similar thing in that maybe this is just the process. Maybe this is just how a book gets written. And I would keep having these thoughts of, man, other authors don't do this, right? Mm-hmm. There's no way. Other people have to be so much better. I'm so much slower at this in these weird kind of things. And and at the end, it was very difficult for me. This was a task that was monumental and and it took twice as long as it was supposed to. And, yeah. and that alone, a lot of the time that it takes... And maybe this is just what it is. Maybe I could have written more or maybe I could have worked harder day to day to day to get more words out. But the the process kind of taught me that maybe this is the pace. I, I don't know. Maybe this is just what it is. And that was somewhat relieving, maybe a powerful idea that allows us to continue forward. But, um, but all of those things I think are really true and and i appreciate your honesty because that's very real and that's i think more human than anything i i appreciate that and having i think having an analysis of it having an understanding and talking to many people it is a benefit to me of working with so many amazing smart people where to the person no matter how much i admire their body of work and how incredible they are they have their own struggles in some area of what it is that's going on with their creative process or with their business. That's part of what is we're really tied to. And some of what's been so deep of really looking at different elements of the culture that we're in, you know, the like the overall like institutionalized white supremacy culture, you know, I'm not meaning just necessarily, right, folks marching in Charlottesville, you know, but just kind of the overall ethos sometimes and systematic things is perfectionism is actually a direct symptom sometimes of that. And there can be many people who really suffer in that overall system of feeling like everything has to be perfect and has to be to a certain standard. And, um, you can look at especially people who might have an experience of being different from the norm, right? So if I'm a female or a person of color, like I absolutely 100% must do something so that it perfectly so that I'm representing everybody else. People are looking to me to be this person who does it. And it's not to say that my brother and you and right other white males don't experience the kind of stress, but it's been so interesting to me to see that particular dynamic as one that can be contributing sometimes to where people just end up feeling totally locked up. Like, I have to do this for my sisters, right? I must be absolutely 100% perfect and excellent in everything I do. And then when you lay that across what the creative process is of just having the time where you can be writing and and going through your drafts, as, as Anne Lamott in her one of my favorite books of all time, Bird by Bird says, you know, doing your shitty first drafts and being able to just get a whole bunch of words on the page that then end up being shaped. That is so powerful. And I see it when I'm helping my daughter with her homework. It's so sobering to see where she'll start to have some of the struggles where she'll have an assignment for class and start to write it and immediately begin to be editing. I'm not a good writer. And oh, this is too hard. And I'm never going to do this. And I can't ask for help. And that sometimes is the way that we're socialized. And I always just say, no, 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 no. Like, it's totally okay. At first, get all your ideas out and they could be terrible. And then if you get super stuck, go ask the teacher. Your teacher is there to really help you. You know, ask your friends, ask me. And those are things that we're just not always told. It's very much, if you've ever read the book Mindset by Carol Dweck. I haven't. It's an amazing book for all of us as individuals, and, and there's kind of some special layers that have to do with parenting or education, because she talks about the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset. Oh, okay. So, which is probably a familiar concept. Sure, sure. And it's 
very much things around a fixed mindset is that view we get of you're a good writer or you're not. You're smart or you're not. You're going to be a best-selling author or you're not. And all of that based on some predetermined criteria, if you have it or if you don't. When really what the reality and the research says is people that have a more growth-oriented mindset, they work hard. They go through different iterations. And there's always that belief that if I work hard, then I have the capability of getting better. And that can be very liberating. Then you start to really enjoy the, the process. And I think the difference to me that I always try to share with my clients that do struggle, like I do sometimes with perfectionism, is it's not about lowering the standards that you have for what the end result is that you want. Everybody wants to write a great book sure, sure. <laughs> without errors and with amazing metaphors and that's going to be quoted for decades to come. That is awesome to have that desire. But in order to get there, you're going to have a much more messy process. So like let yourself flop around and get the words on the page and spend a few years talking to publishers and not quite hitting the right tone and then eventually, if you continue working it, yeah. you're going to get to the place where, where somebody listens or you'll say, screw it, and you'll end up doing it yourself and doing it well in self-publishing. That my, Michael Bungay-Stanier, who I talked about, who helped me in my book, he sort of had that experience when he was working with a traditional publisher for his book, The Coaching Habit. And after many years and go-arounds, he finally ended up self-publishing in partnership with Page Two, kind of a hybrid publisher. And he sold, I don't know now, it's probably 800,000 copies. Holy and cow. just and, and he worked his tail off for sure. He totally put himself behind it. But he is an example of somebody that really did not give up in the process. And he was trying a particular path that really made sense to him with traditional publishing. And then when that was not meeting his needs, then he went and took a different path and was super successful. So I love having people like that in my life. That can remind me that you got to put in the work, but also it's possible to really have a big turnaround. Oh, that's that's great to have that context and that that support, you know, in a way too. Sp speaking of support, you know, this break the twitch would not exist as it is without the you know the woman who's sitting off camera here, <laughs> my wife Amy, uh, who, who you know is helping behind the scenes with uh, all this stuff, and, and and it definitely helps to have someone to bounce ideas off of and stay like, no, 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 it's, we're fine. You know, keep going, doing this kind of thing. And, and, uh, having that support in whatever means is, is incredible. So, uh, I appreciate that perspective as well. I, I wanted to ask about something you said in, I believe it was your TEDx talk. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned just a, a fun thing that, that was, I think it was just, I may be paraphrasing, but it was, um, my goal is to enjoy life while living it. And and that is something uh, that really stuck with me. What did you mean exactly by that? And what was the context where that came to you? So the context is a definition of success. So that was one in body of work. That was one of the the core areas to me that's really important when you are being really conscientious about your body of work is my definition is your body of work is everything you create, contribute, affect, and impact throughout the course of your life. So everything, your relationships, how you walk through the world, what you build, the work you do, kind of everything comprehensively. And so within that, in order to, to really be deliberate at what you're creating, each person needs to really create a definition of, of success that is really valid for that person. And so for some people, and I, I, I honestly don't care at all what it is, it can be totally different for different people. The only metric that I'm always paying attention to as a coach is when is something really and truly coming from a position of what I call your roots, like deep meaning and purpose and joy for you, and not just something that you feel like, if I do this thing, if I make a million dollars or hit the New York Times list or finally lose 40 pounds or whatever that is, then everything's going to be okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, oh yeah. usually that's not exactly what happens. But where somebody genuinely can get super excited about doing any of those things, that's really fantastic. So for me, my definition of success at the, really the crux of it, is enjoying my life while I'm living it. And in order to do that, I need to make sure that I'm doing work that I totally enjoy with people who I really enjoy doing it with, 
and I'm doing it to a level where I can really take care of myself and my family to something that I've really learned in the past three years of being here, that community is deeply important to me to really be connected in place to my neighbors, to feel like I really know what's happening. I can have a positive influence in my community is really important. Living my values, speaking my truth. And um, so all of those things to me are really embedded in it. But it's just, I, I immediately start to notice. It doesn't mean that I don't have difficult days and that I don't have discomfort and all the other things everybody else does. But that's a very, very important design principle for me. And if I start to notice that over time, I'm really not enjoying what I'm doing, I'm resenting what I'm doing, then I know I need to make an immediate shift because I just do not do well in situations where I have to rely just on self-discipline. I always say my sister and my brother are so much better at it. <laughs> my sister's amazing. She'll get whatever needs to get done early, you know, but definitely on time. My brother was the valedictorian, just super organized and efficient. And I admire that so much about them. I know for me, I tend to have more of that wild creative hair, which I love and which does need to come with an approach that is really fitting for me. I don't have, I think Gretchen Rubin and the Four Tendencies classify sometimes people who get work done for different reasons. So I forget what the types are. Sorry, Gretchen. But you know, <laughs> for some people, it's like it would be mortifying to not complete, you know, their homework assignment or, you know, complete a book by the deadline, because they'd be mortified to be disappointing somebody. That's unfortunately not a driver for me. Sometimes I wish that it were, it, right? I care about it. I never, what, what is more of a driver is I don't want to be disrespecting somebody and disrespecting their time. So if I begin to frame it in that way, that's the part that really gets me going. As opposed to being the straight A student and being perfect at what I do, that's not really a motivator. I'm curious what that was like and how you learned to hopefully love that way that you're motivated, especially growing up with siblings that had perhaps different extrins extrinsic motivations. Mm -hmm. um, was there a, a time you can remember specifically or, or a process that got you through to this place where you're seeing like, well, this is how I work. This is what motivates me. And here we are. It really has been a process. I know that I have, I did spend a lot of years just beating myself up for not being that person and feeling bad years later for not finishing something or, you know, just having an experience of not really embracing both the, my natural approach to how it is that I do, do the work really coupled with, I think in recent years and with a lot of help from my coach, Mark Otto, who's a dear friend and has been a client of mine for a long time. He, in the last couple of years has been coaching me and he's really helped me to get to that positive balance of taking full responsibility for what it is that I want, honoring the natural patterns that I have, and not beating myself up, but also getting really honest with how it is that I can start to interrupt and change some of the long-held patterns. And I do really have the faith on one hand that we are able to change habits that are really that don't make us feel good, right? That are not, not successful. But sometimes it is also in beginning to look more at the truth of what's happening in a situation. Um, I think about it a lot. I've been in such a whole journey these last couple of years with some of my amazing clients who do a lot of work on body trust and body image and looking at this whole amazing body of work, pun intended, <laughs> yeah. of just, again, how many like societal expectations about what everybody should look like is really bringing us so far away from actually being connected with ourselves. Same thing that like, oh, if I just do this many abs and if I control, you know, this amount of food, um, we kind of do that a lot. I think also with work that if I just had that habit and I would get up at five in the morning and it's more in that world, the way that I'm learning about and understanding it, it's more about you authentically connecting with yourself and really being present and loving and honoring yourself no matter where you are in in your body and really connecting with food and understanding like what your true hunger is. And like that is just the most powerful metaphor, I think, also for the creative process. 
it's really that, as my husband would say, you know, stop and touch and listen, like what really is going on? Where are you in this moment? And there are plenty of times if I look at moments where maybe I was numbing myself out on Facebook or checking my phone all the time, it's because I was tired. I'd been working with eight hours back to back of coaching calls and all kinds of deep parenting things. And really what I needed was just to sit quietly, maybe take a nap and that that was really the reason why I was doing it. And instead of taking the time to really look at that, um, I would just do something convenient, which is the twitch, you know, to the phone or the, you know, something else that would kind of have a numbing activity. So it's really like this ongoing journey. And I find what a freedom, liberation in, to me, in the deepest sense of, of really, working so that more people can feel free where we can be understanding how we're deeply related to each other, where we can hold each other as sisters and brothers that we really are, you know, biologically in every other way, like we really do belong to each other. That That's my own belief that we, we really are all related. And the more that we lean into that, the more that we really use our life as a way to help people access more freedom and just be safer and have a thriving life and have a, you know, a really healthy life, that those are the kinds of things that tend to actually be massively motivating. And it's funny when I step back and look at it, like I've been able, despite having my moments of twitch and doing all these habits, like I have been able to write a few books and I did create, you know, this amazing center. And it makes me laugh sometimes because people are like, how do you do it? How do you do so many things? And I'm sitting here going, God, do you realize how much more I could do if I just got my stuff together, you know? Oh it's, my gosh, it's all I feel relative. That. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, wow. I laugh because I, I always feel the same way, you know, with the, the stuff we're doing. I always feel like I could have done more or I could have done better. Yeah. I'm curious for those that might be interested in doing some of the work that you're talking about around building communities of their own, lifting up others and providing uh, opportunities for others to be seen. What are a few things or one or two things that might be helpful in their own process of starting that for themselves? One of the first sets of questions I find that's super helpful if you just look at where it is that you tend to show up and be really comfortable in spaces. So it could be events that you go to or it could be Facebook groups that you belong to, whatever that is, is ask yourself the question, who is here, who is not here, and why aren't they here? And that can be the first set of kind of open, curious questions that you can have. Very often you may have no idea or awareness of who's not there because like I was giving the example way back in the beginning of the conversation that feels like it was three hours ago, but it was (laughs) less than an hour. Um, As I discovered with many people, when we were talking about Native American entrepreneurs, many people had no awareness. It wasn't even in their awareness to even ask. So they wouldn't think to say, oh, wow, there are no Native entrepreneurs at this business conference or on this panel because it wasn't even in their awareness. But beginning to ask that question is a really powerful thing where you could just begin to notice Um, and ask yourself questions. The second part is one that is really deep that is, I think, related to this listen first question. And first of all, when doing work, and this specifically in my identity as a white woman, as a white person, and the way that I walk through the world, it has been very important to me to get training, to get an analysis, to be learning from people especially folks of color, people who have a lived experience that's different than mine, to get an analysis and an understanding about issues of inclusion. It's an ongoing thing. I make mistakes every single day, (laughs) every day. That's part of the nature of what the work is. But having more of an analysis is really important in order to uh, have a framework to, to begin to step in the work and really to have an awareness for myself a lot of people, I think, that are my my own folk, my own white folk, will get confused sometimes between when you use words like institutionalized white supremacy or things like that. It's like, oh, my God, like I'm not a white supremacist or I'm not a racist. And clearly, 
absolutely, you may not wake up in the day and be writing racist, you know, memes or doing things like that. But it's having an understanding about the way that systems were created that can be super helpful. And in my own experience, it can just reduce that fragility sometimes that exists of like, it's it's okay. It's okay to have an awareness about history and to recognize what my own people's role was in that history. And then to make choices about choosing to engage with it, to really deeply understand the experience of others. Mm. So in having that and learning first from people who have had the lived experience, my best friend, Desiree Attaway, we met in college. And so we've been best friends for 35 years and um, she, it's been so helpful to have her as she does work in diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I'm really lucky in that she shares a lot of the work that she does, which has been really helpful. So that I feel like is super critical for folks who might not be from a dominant culture. And again, that can look very different ways. It's not only privilege that has to do with, uh, with race. It can also be economic privilege or able-bodied privilege, all of these different things. From there is really doing a lot of listening. And um, I am some days um, more short-tempered. <laughs> Yesterday, over the weekend, I was had a shortcut version that had a bit of profanity when I was engaging on Facebook with somebody who was posing a question around inclusion. And it was one of those moments where I was really tired and I was frustrated. And it was like people from a dominant culture that were saying, you know, what should we do in cases of bringing in like more folks of color, you know, in, into it and in, like into a university. And my shortcut answer was like, STFU. <laughs> like that's the, that's actually the shortcut advice sometimes is to just listen. That was a case where I, I probably jumped too quickly in that conversation to kind of to the shortcut that didn't have any context, but really that, Sometimes like that, that edge of, of learning that I really learned from a lot of my, you know, my relatives on the Navajo side from a lot of friends that I have from diverse backgrounds is really, really helpful. Just listening, spend lots of time listening, being in community. One of the things very often, if you are somebody who's interested, let's say you have your own space or you have your own company and you're more interested in bringing in um, people in your in your community from diverse backgrounds spend time supporting events that folks might have in their own communities. And I, I call it being the weirdo in the room, which is a really great exercise to have where you could be the only business coach in a room full of software engineers, or you could be the only white person in an event that's primarily native business owners. And just being able to be present and be supportive, sponsor an event ask what needs to be done, clear plates off the table, like refresh the water, be of service and listen before coming and offering um, advice. Because again, that's so much how it is that we're socialized. And again, speaking from my own identity, we're socialized to believe that we already have the answers. And that can be something that is massively off-putting because it's not true. Often unhelpful. <laughs> and really unhelpful, you know, and it's just kind of like, how weird is it? that somebody that you don't know at all would say, hey, you know, come to my space. They don't know based on their past experience, are they going to be safe there? Are they going to have people asking them questions that are really insensitive and just annoying, right? Are they going to be tokenized? So by spending some time to really get to know people in their own context, um, you're going to make tons of mistakes. As I said, I make them every day, but that's a usually a really good first step in the process is just who's here, who's not here, why aren't they here? How can I begin to engage people from those communities in those conversations and just listen, listen, listen much longer than you think you need to? I would love to have you pull a question. Oh, okay. So choose one. What is your favorite thing about Anthony, is your that origins or yourself? Who, what's the name on that? Alex Paglieri. Is that oh, right? funny. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Alex. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So we don't look at these questions. So we, okay. I, I never have any idea what they're going to be. So I'm glad he provided multiple, yeah. <laughs> multiple options. Thank yes. you, Alex. Well, so the favorite thing about you, can I say that? You can do it. Whichever option yeah, you'd like. I, yes. Let's do that. <laughs> let's do that one. Cause you've already heard all of my origins that I've been talking about myself. 
So I love your kind presence. You definitely model being somebody who is thoughtful and who's listening really carefully. So it's been really fun to do this interview with you. Looking at the care that you put into the work that you do by driving out to my space, setting up, having two cameras, doing all these things, editing in the process really says something to me about the kind of care and the vision that you have for the work itself, as opposed to what many people do, which is just jump on Zoom or Skype and record a podcast. It makes me curious, really knowing what your own creative process is. And I can tell that craft is probably really important to you of doing things a very particular way. So that is what I have learned in this hour or so that we've spent together. <laughs> I was going to say, well, thank you. I really appreciate that. That means a lot to me. Well, it's been an honor to, to speak with you and I uh, look forward to chatting with you more, but this has uh, been a wonderful conversation. So thank you. Thanks for having me. There you go. Well, that was very nice okay. of you. Thank you. I was. <laughs> and uh, I knew it would make you embarrassed. Yep. Which was even better. I'm right? shrinking I into like, my yes. <laughs> <laughs> shrinking into Enough my chair. I'm. I'm. I know. I'm. And I-